Welcome all, and thank you for tuning in to the Bad Hombres FC podcast, where we talk all soccer in the DMV. My name is Jose Omania, sports writer for the Sports Pulse and other publications. And joining me, as always, is my co-host, Mario Maya from El Tiempo Latino. Mario, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm just rolling around, uh, doing not much, chilling. And, you know, I was going through Twitter today, and I found a great quote from a random Twitter philosopher. Just because you can go to a bar during a pandemic doesn't mean you should go to a bar during a pandemic. <laughs> we're just going to go ahead and just start the main topic. Uh, but we're going to hold that off. I will not go to a bar with you. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> and and yes, we're, that is... we're, we're, in, we're in dangerous times. You shouldn't go to a bar at all. <laughs> I think it's the worst time to go to the bar. And... Maybe we'll impart that knowledge to NWSL in a moment. But anywho. Oh, of course. <laughs> we just had some breaking news come in uh, within the past couple of hours. Uh, before we get into the NWSL and its uh, alcohol policy, we will get to MLS because they just announced their tournament schedule. They're set to start their tournament on July 8th. As we all know, Orlando City SC will face Inter-Miami that day, and it will be followed by Chicago Fire taking on Nashville. I feel bad for the people in the West Coast. Anywho, <laughs> we're here to talk about DC United. Their schedule came out for Group C play. They will start with last year's Eastern Conference champions and former MLS Cup holders, Toronto FC. They'll play them on July 10th. Then they will take on Bruce Arena and the New England Revolution on July 16th at 8 o'clock. And lastly, they will end group play with the Montreal Impact 10.30 p.m. kickoff time on July 21st. First, Mario, how does it feel that DC United avoided the dreaded early morning 9 o'clock kickoff games? Um, I think they should think they're lucky stars they're not playing that early in the morning. <laughs> Also, you know, I have enough time to come back from my day job to actually watch these games. That's more of a personal note right there. Um, I feel sorry for those people that have to witness Orlando versus Inter-Miami. And worse, if you live in the West Coast, you got to watch Chicago against Nashville. Sounds like a terrible proposition altogether. Well, Orlando and Miami will be fun just because that'll be the first game back and both teams just want to dive in and attack. I feel bad for everybody who's going to watch Chicago and Nashville. That's a personal opinion, but I digress. <laughs> um, I think I think DC United got the good, got the the better end of the bargain here because you know you get time to prepare for these games. You play them at your usual times, you know, seven thirty, seven thirty p.m. to eight thirty, eight uh, eight o'clock kickoff, like you do during the regular season. If this is before the coronavirus and you get time to actually get your you get time to actually mentally prepare yourself for these for these games. Yeah, I think the one benefit is, you know, you and I had discussed offline is what time would you wake up for a nine o'clock kickoff? You know, I think back to my personal self and playing club soccer when I had nine to ten o'clock kickoffs and you would have to wake up at least at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning just to, you know, now I'm a kid. Talk about when you're a child. All you got to do is get the gear on in your house, get the ride and go. 
more than likely, and I haven't checked the protocol to double-check and make sure, the teams are going to wake up in the hotels probably at 5 o'clock in the morning to then take a shower, get dressed, but then go change when they get to the building or get to the ESPN uh, Wild World of Sports venue. So you're talking about changing, like you said, changing rhythms and things like that. I think what's also beneficial is that they're playing Toronto first. Playing a team like that who went to the MLS Cup last year, who's who's competed, who's probably in their best run, still in their best run, even after losing Javinko um, last year, um, they're still a very tough team to beat, if not the team to beat in the Eastern Conference. So to play them first, you get to test what you got. I think DC United, if we recall, DC United had the best defense last year in Major League Soccer. So it gives them a chance to see where their defense is, see the troubles that they had in the midfield early on this season, see if now with healthy bodies and see against a really good opponent where they're going to lack as we could progress, not just in the tournament, but in the season. Exactly. And also this gives you a chance to kind of avenge your demons from last year's playoff series against Toronto, where you lose five to one with four goals in overtime. Uh, (laughs) It, it also gives that opportunity just to figure out where where you stand after after having such a long period of time where you didn't play any games. Uh, I think that's part of the benefit of playing the 8 o'clock games and playing Toronto first, of course, because you're kind of going to be on even playing ground with uh, game fitness. But the one thing that makes Toronto stand out, uh, Toronto stand out as a team than the other three teams that are in this group is they have game changers. You have Josie Altidore. You've got Michael Bradley in the midfield. You also have Alejandro Pozuelo, who was arguably one of the best newcomers to MLS last season. And is their answer as to the, their answer to the question of who's going to replace replace Javinko? You found it in Pozuelo. Mm-hmm. And also, Toronto has been one of the best teams in MLS the last few years. They've made it to the MLS Cup three out of the last four seasons. So... This is going to be a tough test, and it's a good test to start out with if you're Ben Olsen, because it'll show where where you, your strengths are, where you need to work on, and how you're standing after after months of uh, after months of not playing. Right, you know Ben started the season with a four three three formation, a little bit of a switch from last season with Wayne, um, and also because they're just they're without Par Riola. So to go now in the 4-3-3, it's going to be interesting just to see if he changes it back up, maybe switches it back to what he used to have in like a 4. It was like more of a 4-4-2, but more with two in the center and the withdrawn forward behind the main striker. Or if he plans to stick with the 4-3-3, you know, in the, first, in the last game they played with obviously Briant, Mora, and Knauss in the back with Birnbaum, you know, now you have more healthy bodies. You know, you have Chris Adouin at some at almost 100% fit. O'Neal Fisher, 100% fit. Um, Mohamed Abu, who had just been trans, who just had been signed then, almost at 100% fit, who can also play defense. So you have enough, and, and in the midfield, you're going to have someone in uh, Iwain who you didn't have to start the season. Is 
is that knee 100% healthy? I think if I'm Ben, if Iguain can go, throw, see what he can do, change the formation a bit, and maybe have Edison Flores play up top with Kamara, have a side play in the wing like he normally do, does, and go back to your original 4-4-2 and ha- allow you know, Iguain be that playmaker that he's known to be. I will be interested to see what happens, but you know, United's more healthy than it probably was to start the season. Absolutely. And I mean, if you don't necessarily throw Iguain as a starter, it's always good to have him in the bench as, you know, that little ace up your sleeve that you can have at a moment's notice to change the momentum of the momentum of the game. Now I would see playing a three a three man backline. I know it's something that people don't uh, mostly fans did you did see part of last season it didn't quite work out but you got Russell Canals and what you can do is play a three-man back line and have Canals play play in the midfield but also play him as like a sort of like a stopper of sorts so that it also allows him to help to push back a little more on defense and it, it, it that it'll allow a little more defense like a little more defensive help I think for me personally, I have the lineup right now from their last game. I could see them playing with the same lineup. Maybe maybe put, uh, playing Junior Moreno a little bit back and pushing Edison Flores to play behind, behind and uh, Yamil Asad to play behind Ola Kamara as a lone striker kind of a deal and have th- uh, three, man mid- three players on the midfield set up to you know, allow to be kind of like a pendulum of sorts to swing back and forth. With especially because you have guys like Felipe and Julian Gressel that could definitely do that for you. They, it allows them. It allows you to kind of do that in a way. So uh, it should it should be interesting to see what formation Ben Olsen plays with. But I don't see him getting out of the four three three to be honest with you, because it paid dividends the last time they played. But again, this is Ben Olsen. He can change it up on you at a moment's notice as well. Right, and I think what was telling was his comments afterwards about O'Neill Fisher's performance. Now he liked how he's come in and from the injury, you know, basically the guy was out for a year and a half. And now that he's back and he played, played 45 minutes, I think we may see, even though Ben really likes how Mora plays, we can see a situation where either Mora sits or, you know, he starts Moreno on the bench, puts... Gressel more, I mean, puts Knaus back in the midfield and maybe gives uh, O'Neill Fisher a run back in his right-back, left-back position um, so that they can have Birnbaum and Briant solidify the back um, and Knaus help Felipe in the middle. That's why, while I agree with you, the 4-3-3 is probably the best for this team. I just, just for that first game alone, I could see them treading back into that 442 formation add stability in the back but also allow you know allow uh, Julian Gressel to go up more forward allow Edison Flores to go up more forward give Emil side more chance in the with the ball in the middle so and hopefully more attacking options with with Kamaro not being by himself and so you know Ben's got something that he's he had a little bit last year and he's got it now because of this pandemic, which is healthy bodies and a lot of options to to use those bodies. Absolutely. And also, 
I think the beauty about a ter- about tournament plays, you have wiggle room to tinker with your starting lineup. So you can you can have a certain set of a certain set of players to start the tournament, but second game if it doesn't work out with certain players in their positions, you can always switch it up. And I think that's that's going to come in handy for DC United in their next two games against New England and Montreal after Toronto after the Toronto game. Because then you'll have a sense of what works, what doesn't work, what player what player works best playing in set in a certain position, and which player I can bring in afterwards. So, what are your expectations? Me personally, I look at DC United as the second best team in this group. They should be able to be competitive against Toronto. Maybe push for a draw, but more than likely, that's going to be a too competitive a game. Depending on how everybody looks, that could be. It's reasonable to suggest the loss, but against New England and Montreal, I feel like United should they should be if not better than both of those teams just because of the way they came into the off season, the way they've looked so far this year, and the potential of having healthy bodies, I, and what both New England and Montreal have done during this past year, trust what they can do. They are always going to be competitive, but if you told me from the start, hey, who are you picking to get out of the, this group? First Toronto, second DC, and then as one of the top three, maybe Montreal. But that's because I'm slightly biased against New England. But you know, what what do you think? Should fans expect a top two finish, or will DC and I be fighting for one of the top best three to stay in the tournament? Hmm. That could also be a possibility, but me personally, I think they'll finish second in this group. I think the Toronto game is going to be one of those games that'll test them to their limits, which is a good possibility they can get a draw out of this. They can also lose this game because, again, Toronto is a different animal. While as New England and Montreal, both competitive teams, these are winnable games for D.C. United. So I can totally see them finishing second. And I think the other thing that goes against Montreal and New England is they only have one or two players that they depend on selfishly to help them get through. Well, then that's fine and all, but it's something that could be a detriment to them at the end. Right. Agreed. It will be taking place in Orlando. Meanwhile, speaking of Orlando... As everybody knows, the Florida Panhandle has been experiencing a real large setback because of the coronavirus, and it has affected the sport of soccer. Um, Aside from the MLS's back tournament, which is supposedly will be held in the bubble, and now me and Mario look silly for attacking MLS and its policies, now knowing how... I'll use a big word here, trifling the, the Florida Panhandle is right now. But it has become a problem in the NWSL tournament that's taking place in Utah. Teams are scheduled to start flying into Utah today and tomorrow. And guess what? So the Orlando Pride will be has withdrawn themselves from the tournament following 10 of their members of their staff as well as players being infected with the coronavirus. With Orlando gone, you have players like Marta, Ali Krieger, Cindy LaRue, 
Emily Sonnet. You know, you have all these players that are missing out. I'm counting 11 international players missing out. Orlando is one of those teams that everybody watches because of the names they have. Mario, what were your thoughts on <laughs> what happened and how the NWSL said, it's fine, we'll just knock them off. Everybody gets into the, to the knockout round anyway. So, to quote the words of Cardi B, coronavirus, it's getting real, y'all. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting there going, like, how on? I was like, oh, no. It, it, got, to or, it got to Orlando. Like, th- this was a bat. And I'm like, it sucks that they had to withdraw. I understand why they withdrew. But then when you find out the reasons and how these players ended up getting the coronavirus... Well, the theory, the theory the being theory. The, theory, the theory that's being passed around, according it originally reported by the Athletic and AP is also um, cite, citing different sources to say the same thing, is with contact tracing, everybody went to the same shopping store, but also went to a bar, which has caused a lot of these cases in Orlando to appear from this one bar and yeah that, that's kind of a that's a big problem and yeah that'll throw a huge monkey wrench into your plans which now allows you to pretty much say i we can't play this tournament there's no way we've got players that are infected and we don't want to risk the health of our, we don't want to risk the health of our competitors and other like fellow national team members so we're just going to sit this one out and I think how NWSL responded to it, they were quick on their feet. And you were like, all right, let's do, let's do this not knockout round style. Well, at least the second round, everybody's going to get into the knockout round. I, I like their reaction, but I just feel like as fans, we were quick to jump at the bar stuff. I, and look, I agree with you. I personally went out recently to see what this outdoor eating experience would be like. It was terrible. (laughs) And I had enough social distancing. And so I could imagine if it, and, and I had social distancing, I was by myself. Imagine you're with friends in a bar situation, you're inside and someone happens to be near you that has the coronavirus. And so and, and it spreads. So I think, you know, yes, should they have that, they've been smarter about their decision making about going to a bar, yes or no. It's personal choice, really. They had the ability to go to a bar because of the state with being very flex about their rules, and it came back to bite them. You know, I, I, I only feel bad for, you know, people like Singular, who is coming back after giving birth to her second child. She was making a comeback run. Uh, Marta, who's always game. Like, this is, a, this is a person who thrives in these tournament situations. She's 36 years old, going to 37. She doesn't have many games left. You know, I'm a WWE fan, and I'm watching The Undertaker's docuseries. I'm looking at Marta. You don't got many games left. You're not. You don't got it. Right. You, you like the analogy. You don't have a lot of WrestleManias left if you're the Undertaker. And in Mar- in Martha's case, she like she's thirty. She's going to be thirty-seven years old real soon. Like you're right. 
She doesn't have much in the t- she wouldn't have much in the tank left. But same, again, same thing with Ali Krieger as well, who's hitting around that 35, 36 age range as well. Again, Formiga is an anomaly to science, and she's forty two and still going strong. So we can always be wrong here. But yeah, but I just think that they're like you know going back to Cindy Emily Sonnet was uh, was one of the new signings they brought in. I, I just. Orlando's always been that team in the men's and the women's club teams. Orlando just, they get all these great players together and they just can't put it together to to win a trophy. And I felt like with these collection of players that they have, not just with the U.S. national team, but also Marta from Brazil, you have a couple of players from Canada and Australia and then Jay Moore from England, you have the perfect setting for everybody to thrive in in this World Cup style kind of tournament. And here we go again. It's, the coronavirus really is serious. People keep forgetting about it. And it wiped out a whole team. Yeah, and people for the people going, well, it's only 10 people, it's six players. You have to quarantine for 14 days. The tournament starts legitimately this week. And so you can't just... Should the league have allowed May teams come in a week earlier? Maybe. But they were trying to save costs. They were trying to be cheap about it. Let's talk. And, <laughs> and they waited. Say, hey, come in late later in the week. Come in. We'll test you before game day. And we'll quarantine you for 14 days. You know, we'll talk about the spirit. But a lot of these teams are rolling with 24, 25 deep squads for that right. reason. Right. And so that, that kind of kills it a little. And also... You know, if you're getting your quarantine for 14 days because of the coronavirus, that's the length of the tournament just about. <laughs> you're, you're missing a good chunk of the tournament for being quarantined. So it also just like totally defeats the purpose of having a hel- a full healthy squad in these kinds of situations. So when, when that when that's out of the window, you have no other choice but to withdraw. And Orlando's not alone uh, for a lot of personal favorites people watch these games because they're got favorite players especially in the case of the nwsl with the women's national team alice morgan out because she just had a child um tobin heath and now she's concerned about the coronavirus will not be playing uh kristen press she also is concerned about the coronavirus and she had a death in the family last year it was a sudden death similar to everybody um correct me if i'm wrong in chelsea we have a player who's not playing because he also has a fearful of a family condition and he doesn't want to play so i can understand kristen press's motives as well megan rapino concerns about injury and coronavirus carly lloyd got injured preparing for the tournament and she's <laughs> on, gonna play on like her twitter where she's like no i am not pregnant so there we can we <laughs> yes. provide the right now she's not pregnant she just has a knee injury she had to have knee surgery that's how bad the injury was and then a last-minute announcement, Mallory Pugh has a right hip injury. So, Mario, you're more of a casual. I, I actually like following the NWSL as a general. You follow more of the spirit when you can. As a more casual fan and observer, these players that are not going to be there, does it kind of hamper your interest and other people's interest in the tournament? Um. Yeah, because these are... Like the names you just mentioned, Al, like I could do off the bat, Alex Morgan, Kristen Press, 
Megan Rapino, Toby he- Tobin Heath, and Carly Lloyd. These are all fixtures on the U.S. Women's National Team, and the, they draw attention because of their name, because of the name of the name value they have. Alex Morgan, it's understandable she was already out before the tournament because uh, due to her pregnancy. And I think for the reasons that Tobin Heath, Kristen Press, and Megan Rapino pulled out of the tournament, they're totally valid, and um, it it get, it gives it puts in perspective like. Yeah, not I'm like as much as you want to want to play your tournament, they want to prioritize their health first. And so yeah, it does put a hamper a little because you expect you were really wanting to watch these games to see these players. Has that dampened my interest in the person personally? Not really. I'm still really interested in watching this tournament mainly because of the Washington spirit. Yeah, we'll talk about them and their style and why they're attracting new people in a second. But just speaking about these misses in general, there's a common theme here. They're Tobin Heath, over 30. Uh, Mega Rapino over 30. Carly Lloyd, over 30. They all were preparing to play for the Olympics. The Olympics have been pushed back a year. So for them, it's not of a good risk if it's not for a season to come out here and play in this tournament, especially as coronavirus cases continue to explode. Uh, Kristen Press, it's more, it's a combination of things, and I don't want to get into her head, but I could see where she's like, there's nothing for me to risk it here. But those three in particular, because of their ages, I could see where they're thinking we were originally preparing for an Olympics uh, to go for a gold medal they don't want to risk it. And Carly Lloyd with the knee injury, that's just bad timing. By the time the Olympics happen next year, she may be between being either 37 or 38 years old. So she's looking long-term as well. And she's like, well, this was my original goal. I'm going to continue going for it. And I'm not going to let this stop me. Same thing with Megan Pino. You know, she's been very, you know, she wants to go to the Olympics as well. So, um, I don't begrudge the, these women for missing the tournament. It doesn't hamper my interest, but I can see where more casual observers are going to ask, where is Alex Morgan? Where is Megan Rapino? So there will be some hits, especially being considering that it's going to be on CBS and the CBS Sports Network. It's CBS probably were hoping that the majority of the U.S. women's national team players are going to be on it. So... It's going to require the general interest of the women's soccer team community to really galvanize around this tournament. Right. And also to touch back on Carly Lloyd, she will be turning 38 next year. So she's currently 37 now. So it'll be more 38, 39 going into the Olympics. Right. And so, yeah. And so it's, it's a touchy subject, but at the same time, like, you do understand why they're not playing in this tournament. Well, as we prepare for the NWSL Challenge Cup, it's important to remember that the local team, the Washington Spirit, is there. They recently announced their 26-woman roster. As, and as reported by all four eleven, the core of the team is still a part of the roster. Head coach Richie Burke is looking to make changes to the back line with the addition of Jenna Hellstrom. Uh, Canadian international last year the spirit went from 
having a good start to the season, try to streak forward to get the last playoff spot, but we're just a couple of points shy. Both Andy Sullivan and Roosevelt will be making the trip of U.S. Uh, Women's National Team Internationals. But the schedule change, because of Orlando not participating, caused a little bit of a schedule change for the Spirit as well, where the Spirit will continue to face three of the top four playoff teams from last year. But instead of playing fourth place O.L. Reign, they'll play the league champions on the week, on uh, match day two, the North Carolina Courage. Mario, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, the spirit? And what do you hope to see, based on your knowledge of, of the spirit, what do you hope to see in tournament play? All right. So when they redid the schedule and it was announced that they were going to play the North Carolina Courage, I'm not going to lie. I got scared. <laughs> you know, this is the league champions we're talking about. And when you have Jessica McDonald and Lynn Williams on your front line, you're, you may be in for a rough, rough time. Right. I think Richie is being too optimistic. I understand he wants to continue. For those who haven't watched Spirit, essentially the Spirit wants to play more possession-based soccer, free-flow attack. Um, Richie always talks about what he enjoys seeing Barcelona doing as like one of his motivations and what he hopes to have put in for the spirit. But now you are you still have Paige Nielsen and Samantha Stab, who are your back line, but you're saying, hey, we have Jenna Hellstrom. We may switch it to a three-back formation. As people who have watched DC United games last season can tell you, if your team is just because you have one piece that could do a three back does not mean everybody can do a three back formation. So I would caution Richie of playing a a new formation. Your first three games are three of the last year's best teams. You're playing against Chicago who made a big push and a big run last year with Julie Ertz as their leader and Morgan Bryan back. Then you have, like you said, North Carolina who has the best attacking duo with McDonald and Lynn, and Lynn Williams. Portland's and always competitive. And you also have Abby Dalkemper in the back line as well, who was, exactly. one of the, who was one of the revelations for the U.S. women's national team last year during the World Cup. Exactly. And then you have Portland Thorns, who have uh, Canadian international Christy Sinclair, who can score a hat-trick just because she wants to. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so those are... They were very, the Spirits no joke. Last year, they played all three teams very well. But I think that to, this is going to be your first competitive matches. And if Richie's preparing to go out there with a three person back line, I hope the rest of the midfield is prepared. I hope Rose is still going to be able to, Roosevelt is going to still be able to roam the midfield like she wants to and make those perfect precision passes that she's well at. And that, you know, I hope that the rest of the team is going to be prepared because you have three attacking quality sides there that are going to, you're just going to get hit in the face right away in this tournament before you can pl- It's the opposite of what we had with DC United, where DC United is going to get hit once, but the next two games, they're manageable. Spirits is going to get, it's going to be a punch and then another punch and then another punch. 
And I think the one thing that Richie Burke should should prepare for, and I think I know he wants to play the Barcelona style, but against Chicago, North Carolina, and Portland, I think it's going to be impossible to do that. I think what they can do, and what and if you want to switch up the style a little bit, try playing uh, on a try playing counter. It, it it may not be the sexiest option, but it's an option that could work, especially if you're going against teams that are so heavy attack base and are going to pretty much throw everything plus the kitchen sink at you. And look, in North Carolina, like the switch was where I was. I was a bit concerned just because, like you said, they have so many attacking options. But also, North Carolina has been arguably the best team in in the NWSL for the past couple of seasons and possibly the world. And so when you have this tournament play and then you're, there's an expectation that you're going to use this to springboard into your regular season, if there is one, you don't want to you know, start off on the back foot and have these competitive matches and punch you in the face a lot to the point where you get to the regular season and everybody's demotivated or unsatisfied. This is going to be an opportunity because now you have Roosevelt in there for a majority of the competition, something the Spirit hasn't had in a very, very long time. You have a back line that has chemistry, so why mess that up? And you have a couple of strikers that, you know, the last couple of seasons, it was unsure. Uh, but now you have Ashley Sanchez, your draft pick. You you have your midfield in your back line. And you got Ashley Hatch, who had an excellent season last year. You had in, up an attack where she had a record-setting amount of goals for her personal her, her personal uh, record of goals. You have Jordan DeBassi, one of probably the bigger revelations um, from last season. And you have the goalkeeper of the year. So... They have a good squad. I just there's there's tinkering, and then there's over tinkering. You know, there's making moves that you don't need to make. And I'm wondering if Richie's, while he's he's being thoughtful in his his mindset, and he'll be talking to the media on Thursday about it as well. It will be interesting to see if he's really considering to make the move to the three back, or if he's just you know, he's saying things of what he wishes he could do if this was a full year setting. And because of the tournament format, he may, like you said, stay to a four back, be more insular and protective and go on counters or, you know, have possession when they can, but be more focused on maintaining the midfield structure to not lose balls in the midfield and be a cagey battle versus going what Richie wants to do and attacking forward all the time. Right, and I think with Rose Laval in the midfield, you do you can play that counter that kind of a counter attack because Rose Laval could be that that uh, that that uh, in that piece in the midfield that'll set it up for you just perfectly in some aspects. So that you have that going for you. And you do have a young, exciting player in in Ashley Sanchez that could pro, that's gonna that's gonna be eager to show to show what she has in this tournament as well. So there are, even though the opponents are gonna be really, really tough, you also can have some pretty decent expectations coming from the spirit in group play. Yeah, and what helps is that everybody goes to the knockout round. 
but you don't want to be that seventh or eighth spot either. And then you have to end up playing a North Carolina in the first round or, you know, they want to be in that four or five tier. So for me, the expectation is, hey, you got to be Houston when it comes to your Houston game match. It seems like they always have a rain delay against Houston. So hopefully being in Utah, <laughs> they don't have a rain delay. But, um, you know, they have to win that Houston game and to be competitive against Port- Portland. Um, all three games they had against Chicago, Portland, North Carolina were very competitive last year. So I expect the same thing this year. Um, they beat North Carolina in their uh, ho- clo- home closing game last year. So I could they they can easily come out and win at least two of those games. Right. I want to say they. I can see them drawing both North Carolina and Portland. I think Chicago. I can see them edging out a positive result and I totally see them beating Houston. And that's a little more of the optimist in me. Realistically, I think they could I think they'll eke out either third or fourth place in the in this group. And like we said the last time we did the prediction prior to Orlando pulling out of this tournament, I expected to make somewhat of a deep run in this tournament as well. For those who don't know and to help Mario out there um, so it's all single table, but everybody's going to play four matches. Um, and then everybody's going to knockout round. So it's going to be based on points. And I say points very loosely because it's going to be, you know, you're going to have a lot of tiebreakers and first tiebreakers always are goal differential and wins. So that's where that, where we kind of go back to that defense is going to be important to edge out, you know, if they're going to lose, a, a one goal loss, and then you win by two the next game in case of those tiebreakers. So you put yourself in a more favorable spot to playing, you know, playing a Houston or playing a, a Rain who are going to be missing big players, going against different teams or Sky Blue in the uh, knockout round. So you can make that deep run. Um, but overall, it should be interesting to see how the Spirit do. Um, going forward, though, um, Richie shouldn't. This should, this is not the time to experiment. That I think that's the best way I'm gonna leave it as. This is the time to go out with your aces and see what you have, so that going forward, when it's time to experiment, see see what works in the season. Right now, it's tournament. Like just one bad move can really hamper your chances at winning it. Right. So in all, in other words, if you're the spirit. Come out guns blazing. Exactly. Speaking of guns blazing, the final topic was Mario's recommendation. After seeing everybody talking about it, I felt like, sure, I'll join the conversation. <laughs> and that is, this past week, we on we celebrated the 10-year anniversary of Landon Donovan's last-minute goal against Algeria in the 2010 Men's World Cup that sent the men's uh, national team to the round of 16, and I believe to win that group as well. So just some background, it was the final game on group play against Algeria. The USMT just needed either a win, a draw, or a combination of results. Essentially, they were in a good spot, but after the Slovenia draw where a goal was disallowed, the players were very ramped up for this game in South Africa. It was scoreless 
until the 91st minute when a failed goal attempt after a pass from Josie Altador to Clint Dempsey was denied. And Landon came in swooping in for the last-minute kick to get the goal that allowed the United States to edge England in the group to win the group um, and go to the round of 16. Mario, what do you remember from this game? And, you know, what are your thoughts on everybody celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Landon Donovan's goal? Uh, so I was watching it, biting my nails in the living room. My 18-year-old self was like, oh, my God, I need y'all to win. What is going on here? When Landon Donovan scored the game-winning goal, and in goal, weirdly enough, is Philadelphia Union legend Raisin Bowley. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, I completely lost it. I started yelling goal and running up and down the living room like a madman. And the screams of my sister yelling upstairs in her room, yelling, shut up, I'm trying to go to, go to sleep. I'm like, but the United States had just scored a goal. I apologized afterwards. I'm questioning your sister's uh, actions and going to sleep at 4 o'clock on a and if I correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was a Saturday afternoon. I had so many questions. The Tuesday morning game, actually. Yeah, it was early. Like, what is going to sleep for what? Like, <laughs> time to get up. Go go to McDonald's. Go give me some breakfast. Anywho. Um, no, I remember that game. Um, I remember sitting on the couch watching the game and just reacting like you said, just acting like, like all hell broke loose and very excited and happy. Um because they did get screwed in that Slovenia game. That was a goal. Marissa Douche. I, you know what? I, I watched the replay of that game. I, I ju Just the replay of that, of that disallowed goal. Ten years later, I got to ask the question. Where was the foul? Where? Just where? It was a make-o call for a Slovenia penalty that should have happened like ten minutes earlier. And I feel like it was a makeup call. Like, I wish the referee would have, you know, referees are rarely honest in the sport unless you put them on the spot. Like in Australia, they are obligated to talk to the media afterwards, which I think should happen everywhere in every sport. <laughs> but I digress. Um, you know, I, I remembering back to this game in particular, I just remember the missed opportunities all game long. They, they, Bob Bradley had this concept of, you know, attacking when you need to. And I feel like in this game, the, it was just like, go out there and just kill this team. Like, please. They did similar. You could see it was a similar style and setup to when they played in the Confed Cup when they thought that they were knocked out. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was they were playing Egypt. Where yeah, they, Egypt. They, yeah, and they went out there and they destroyed Egypt 3-0. And funny enough, Thanks to, thanks to other results, they were able to get their butt handed to them the first two games, but go on the knockout round because they beat up Egypt 3-0. Um, so, but in this particular case, unless while the game plan was to attack, they just couldn't score. You mentioned Zamboli. This is the reason he got his contract to Philly. He was making <laughs> save after save after save. There were multiple opportunities. There was a disallowed goal. I think it was a Clint Dempsey play. It was it was Clint Dempsey actually who put the ball in the back of the net. They disallowed the goal. 
Right. So we may have not had this moment if the goal wasn't disallowed. But I think that it was because it was the first real social media World Cup. And it was the first World Cup where everybody's reactions were on record and posted immediately on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And you, the reactions of everybody made that goal even more legendary than it is. Because if you think about it, it's group play. The U.S., based on what England was doing, was going in and probably to a more favorable game as a second place. But they end up scoring this goal, making making that historic spot of saying we won the group for the first time in our history. And yeah, they did end up going to play Ghana. We could talk about that in a second. <laughs> but it was just just the moment and having everybody react to it instantaneously. I think that's what makes it bigger and more impactful of a memory. Right. And also, I think just how the play went down, you know, Landon Donovan is the one that starts the play. He's galloping down midfield, decides I'm going to play to Josie. And when Clint Dempsey takes the shot and Rice and Boley saves it, you know, the save that potentially got him his contract to Philadelphia four years down the line. I think everybody for a split seconds like, oh, no, this isn't going in. And then here comes Landon Donovan out of nowhere just to push the ball into the back of the net and just have absolute, uh, everybody go mental. And I think one of the most memorable calls of that goal is Andres Cantor's call where he absolutely loses it once Landon Donovan scores. Yeah, Andres Cantor, for those who don't know, he has – he has his own little uh, stable of radio stations where he do he does live transmissions in Spanish for the World Cup, and he was doing. And I remember hearing it afterwards. And you could probably look this up on YouTube. Uh, he speaks to Jason Davis, who is now on SiriusXM FC. He, he was talking about how you know he had just recently become an American citizen, and he felt. He felt like he was a part of the country because of he's been calling games from the early 80s to now. And he just felt like he's seen this country go, grow as a soccer nation and that this was that moment, that that Landon Donovan goal was, not to compare it with big moments, but he felt it was, that was, it's the U.S.'s Maradona's greatest goal ever. It's Pele moment. That moment that everybody talks about, you were there when it happened. And I guess that's why everybody's remembering it, because it was that play that really, yes, 2002 happened. We were all excited about what happened, but I think the majority of us were children then. And we do have our 20-somethings that remember that, and they cherished that 2002 World Cup. But then 2006 happened, and aside from a bloodied up, you know, Brian McBride, the U.S. didn't do so well that tournament. And Landon Donovan didn't do so well that tournament. So when Andres talks about you see the growth of not just the U.S. national team from the 80s being a disappointment, not doing anything, not even qualifying for World Cups, to coming here possibly and arguably its best and most greatest product in Landon Donovan, making possibly the most historic goal in U.S. soccer history. And 
Landon Donovan was going through hell. 2006 was terrible for him. He was going through a divorce. Now he's going to his club team, and his club team is saying, you may no longer be captain because we're God David Beckham. All this is going on, and the World Cup was his sanctuary. Being on the U.S. national team was his sanctuary. And, you know, you saw it in the Confederation Cup the year before, and then you saw it in the World Cup where he just put his stamp and said, beat that. He told Clint Dempsey, beat that moment. Beat Josie Altador, beat that moment. And no, no player outside of the women's national team has been able to match that moment in particular of last-minute heroics. People talk about Jordan-esque. That's Jordan-esque. Last-minute, last shot, being the man to go through and get the goal when your new team needs it the most. Yeah, I think that's what really makes that moment special was this is not arguably probably the best player that the U.S. has ever produced coming in in such a clutch moment in a World Cup when you really needed him to step up. And he stepped up in such a way that it's still memorable to this day. And if we're going to joke about it, he that moment also won an ESPY that year. So... <laughs> <laughs> I guess you win some when you lose some because uh, the next game wasn't so hot. I, you know, everybody, the Ghana game, I think the U.S., I think they were just overconfident. They lost to Ghana and then were knockout round, went out in a whimper 2 1, correct me if I'm wrong, in overtime. And so. Game winning goal by Asamoah Gyan. Asamoah Gyan. And so I just. I think they went a little overconfident. I think that there was some of that confidence from playing in the Confederations Cup, beating Spain, who was had gone on a 16-match unbeaten streak, was the number one team in the world, and the U.S. just went gun blazing, hope you know, counterattacking until they died. First half of that Confederations Cup final too. So exactly, I think that they went. Man, this is me being when I was a kid, and I haven't looked back at that Ghana game in a while but I just think that they went overconfident I don't, I don't you know they, they they felt that we've done this before and we can do it again and we can shock the world and which is an amazing attitude I wish that current iterations of the men's national team had similar <laughs> attitudes <laughs> I'm not going to say names about former coaches who do not have similar attitudes but I feel like you know there are times where you need to start feeling like you're invincible and not think about development. And I think Bob really prepared those teams to do that. But in that game against Ghana, they went a little overconfident and didn't prepare adequately enough for that physicality and also just the pure technicality that that, that Ghana team, bar for nothing, was really, really good. Right, and I think it also helps that your midfield is led by Michael Essien, who is one of the best midfielders in the world at that moment in time. Right. Right, exactly. You know, outside of the negative, you know, what is your favorite memory of that World Cup? Whew. There are several, but I want to say my favorite moment of that World Cup would have to be Andres Iniesta's game-winning goal for Spain in that tournament, in that final in particular, because that final was interesting, to say the least, and partially because... Nigel de Young kicked Xavi Alonso with a kung fu kick 
That should have been a red card. I think he only got a yellow. Yellow, and yeah. See, you're going like, how is that not a red card? But I think for me, that makes it even special is he dedicates the goal to Danny Harke, who died of a heart attack a year earlier. And you saw what it meant for Spain. And it was also kind of like this, con- this like the consummation of, yeah, we officially solidified we're the best team in the world. Because they were coming in as the best team in the world and the absolute favorites to win that World Cup. And it just solidified it right there, even though it took 120 minutes to do it and to beat a really good Dutch national team that had Arjen Robin and Wesley Snyder both make it to a Champions League final a month or two earlier. So you were getting a Dutch team in their prime against a Spain team that was at the height of their powers and just finally bring the whole thing together and win their first World Cup as a nation. I think that was probably one of my favorite moments of the World Cup. Right. Uh, I mean, that World Cup, I, I just love the atmosphere playing in South Africa. I think the stadiums were perfect. The venues were perfect. The people were alive. There was no game where I watched that South African World Cup. And funny enough, like, we're preparing for this Qatari World Cup where there's an expectation that we're going to have a lot of empty seats, <laughs> not just because of COVID. It's just that we're not, not a lot of people are going to live in Qatar. And so, you know, I, that would, you know, there was a lot of criticism in some of the early games of people not showing up, but the majority of those games, if you look back, were packed. I know, um, I'm going to say Americans don't like the Vuvuzela, even though in the 90s when MLS happened, all of you guys were buying Vuvuzelas. Shut up. I know, because I was there. So, <laughs> and so everybody going... Vuvuzela added a little extra flavor to the World Cup. It's just, it was, for me, it was just going to RFK times 20. And so <laughs> I, I just enjoyed it. I was like, yo, that's cool. Now, I do understand how, how much Vuvuzela should be going on during a game. Sure, I get that. But it was fine. I just liked the scenery. It was just like, I feel like South Africa was the perfect host for those World Cup. If anything, I'm surprised FIFA, because it doesn't like making more money, I'm surprised it itself hasn't said, well, we'll do the Women's World Cup in Africa and do it in South Africa. I feel sure. like the, the money's there in doing an African World Cup, especially in South Africa, where the venues, like I said, were perfect. And the fear of you know becoming white elephants and just sitting there, I feel like it's expected that Australia and New Zealand are going to win the next World Cup that's coming up, win the bid, the host bidding. But I would, if I'm FIFA, I'm looking at that South Africa, because that was a stretch to even begin with anyway. That took a lot of political will from South Africa to get it. I, if I'm right. FIFA, it's, all, uh, it's also like a testament because it's the first World Cup that was held in Africa. Right, and so I think. Hopefully, after this Australian World Cup, which I they've been t- wanting to do since they saw the Olympics do Sydney, FIFA's been wanting to go there to do a World Cup men's or women's. So the fact that the women's are gonna it's gonna happen, like they're gonna win the bid. But I would like them to, to do maybe even South Africa as the first women's World Cup in Africa too. I think it's 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 prime and it's South Africa's ready. 
they have the venues there. They know how to do this. Uh, absolutely. Oh, I think the other fa- my other favorite moments were just any Diego Maradona moments during that World Cup. He was <laughs> – here's how I take – he's the only Argentinian coach to get Messi properly – properly – coached and properly situated with his team than any other Argentine coach. He's put he put he put Messi in the right spot every time and until that the, the the following World Cup where Messi just took over everything, it wasn't because oh that was the game plan. It was legit I'm going to take over because I'm Lionel Messi. Whereas the this World Cup, Maradona was like, no, I'm gonna put you here. You don't have to worry about defensive. That's why we have Gabriel Henset. I have I have Davis helping you up front. You guys are gonna go together, and it's gonna work. And and it was working, but then when he was getting marked out, that's when it stopped working. <laughs> oh man, that game against Germany that that was the end of it right there. Also, Diego Maradona is the only coach to tell you five months before the start of the World Cup. Hey, I'm going to take a 37-year-old and Martin Palermo to the World Cup. Why? He's the reason why we're going to the World Cup. He scored in the rain. He's going. Weirdly enough, Martin Palermo scores in that World Cup. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't know who Martin Palermo is, he is a Boca Juniors legend. Who was once rumored to to be signed to DC United. But I feel like every Boca Juniors player has now been rumored to be signed by DC United, but I digress. I, I heard a Juan Ramon Raquel made rumor to DC United. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're not wrong there. <laughs> but that's enough for this edition of the Bad Hombres FC podcast. Mario, tell the great people where they can find you and learn more about you. All right, if you want to find me, if you really want to find me, you can find me on Twitter, at MarioMaya1. If you want to find any of my stories, which I'm going to be writing a little more soon, you can find them at El Tiempo Latino. You can follow them on Twitter, at El Tiempo Latino. You can check out their website, at ElTiempoLatino.com. And if you really want a hard copy of an original newspaper, you can find them where you can, you can find them either in newsstands or at your local metro station. They still make those. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> sure. <laughs> With the woke America, I don't see the actual printed paper lasting long, but I digress. Uh, you can follow me at on Twitter at Jose underscore M underscore Umana. I've been recently dealing with more of my full-time slash part-time gig, but I'll be contributing to the sports posts uh, more frequently, not just because I have more time, but just because we have the spirit starting up dc and i starting up hopefully we'll get some recaps up there uh things of that nature so follow the sports posts as well special shout out like always to kevin mcleod and impotent for the music remember to rate subscribe on all your audio listening platforms and give us feedback on what you'd like to hear mario once again thank you for helping out this week and thank you for tuning in talk to you soon adios